there is a very strong innate curiosity in children, otherwise uh, life will not go on. The curiosity of a child is boundless, shifting effortlessly from dinosaurs to space travel. Some people manage to retain that relentless curiosity into adulthood, keeping them on a constant quest of exploration. This is Nobel Prize Conversations, and you just heard Giorgio Parisi, the 2021 Physics Laureate, who was awarded the prize for the discovery of the interplay of disorder and fluctuations in physical systems from atomic to planetary scales. He shared the prize with Sukuru Munabe and Klaus Hasselmann. Giorgio Parisi is Professor of Quantum Theories at the Sapienza University of Rome. He's also the author of Fairy Tales, stories he wrote to pass on his values to his children and now his grandchildren. To consider fairy tales is important in order to have some understanding of life. Your host is Adam Smith, Chief Scientific Officer at Nobel Prize Outreach. This podcast was produced in cooperation with Fundación Ramón Arethas. In the conversation, Giorgio Parisi shares stories of his own innate curiosity and speaks about the coincidences that made him a world-renowned physicist. But first, he talks about the platform one is given after receiving a Nobel Prize. When we last spoke, it was the day of the uh, Nobel Prize announcement in October. Yes, sir. It wasn't an unexpected announcement, and you've been awarded many, many prizes before, but how has it changed the last few months? Well, I got many, many invitations in many different uh, places, and too much invitation for which I am able to answer no. However, I have to read them because some of them are very, very interesting. For example, just the day after the Nobel Prize, that was on Tuesday, I get an invitation from Friday to speak in the House, in the Parliament, Italian Parliament House, because there was a meeting, people from different parliaments of the world, there were people coming from 60 different nations, and there was a discussion on uh, climate change. So I had to, to do a five-minute talk, a six-minute talk, and uh, there was the Italian president of the Republic, the president of the House, the president of the Senate, two ministers, and there was also Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> and after I have a dinner with Nancy Pelosi and the president of the Italian House Senate Chamber, and that was very interesting. So, I mean, you've always been an activist for science, but I suppose this gives a, a boost to the platform. Yes, I mean, it is a platform where uh, people will hear things with much uh, higher voice because uh, it's clear that if now I do some kind of declarations, so typically this is repeated uh, and we send a press release with my declaration, this is repeated by many newspapers, by internet sites, and so on and so on. 
So this uh, leaves me a good opportunity to push for science. For example, yesterday I went to a visit to a, the Laboratorio Nazionale del Gran Sasso. There are some uh, labs under a mountain, uh, Gran Sasso in Italy. They are doing a neutrino physics. There was a visit of uh, President uh, Mario Draghi. And uh, I was one of the three speakers there, apart from Mario Draghi, which added something. And, for example, I requested to do a plan, for a minimum plan for financing science from the next 10 years, in such a way that, uh, independently from the result of next elections, <laughs> the, there will be a minimum support. This is something that was repeated on many times on newspapers. So this was something that was quite interesting. Yes, because you've, you've argued for a long time for the Italian level of support of science is too low. Exactly. Lower than many other countries. And I suppose that one thing that science needs is dependability. And if somebody like Berlusconi comes along and cuts the budget... It just destroys the science base in the country. Yes, I mean, this happened already once because uh, Berlusconi in, uh, arrived to the power in 2008 and made a cut of the financing to the university of 10 and 15 percent in the next years. And therefore, it would be nice that we, we stay in a situation now where we have some kind of a great coalition government. And this will be a wonderful situation to have the decision on some minimal budget for fees for science in the next years. So this may be something good, but let's see if this will be successful or not. In general, do you think that the appreciation for science in Italy is getting better at the level of funding and public support? Well, I think that from the public support, we have a good appreciation of science in Italy. For example, Italy was certainly one of the countries where the vaccination rate was quite high, more than 90%. I was personally struck by the fact that people in the age region of 2029 have been vaccinated in 93% which is a very high, um, high rate. So I think that the general support for science is good. However, the point is that once uh, we have to transform the general support from science in law, in budget, and it's clear that this is maybe not easy, depends on how the government has decided. So we have a general support, but the general support is not such that people are going to vote depending on the party asking how much they support sciences. It's clear that uh, this may be not so important for the people in uh, politics. Giorgio Parisi speaks to Adam from his house in Rome the city where the laureate was born in 1948. He spent most of his life in the Italian capital, now working at Sapienza University, the very institution he entered as a student in the 1960s. He's concerned about the exodus of young Italian scientists to research facilities in other countries and uses the example of European Research Council grants 
to shed light on the issue. The European Research Council is very important because it gives a substantial amount of money on a European scale, and this is done only on based on the quality of research, with no geographical division a priori among resources. Italian people get more than 15% of the total grants for the European Research Council, but half of them goes to people which work in Italy. Half of the grants from the European Research Council to Italians goes to Italians that are in Germany, in France, in England, and so on. That would be not bad if we had the people from our countries that get, come to Italy, but that, this is a very small amount. And so this means that just counting the European Research Country, I would say that half of the young generation of scientists in Italy is outside Italy, hmm. which without having back uh, at, at least half of the very good one. But for example, as you know, I'm working in statistical mechanics and one of the big institutions of research in France is the CNRS, the Centre National for la Recherche Scientifique, and there is a section there of statistical mechanics and the number of Italians is greater than the number of French people. Italians in France, in this field, are 38, the French are 35. But this brings me to, of course, the question about yourself, because you chose to stay in Italy. That was an interesting decision. What drove you to stay put? Well, there were some different kinds of situations. First of all, I spent three years of my life abroad, two years in France and one year in New York. And I was considered from time to time to go abroad, but first of all, the type of research that I was doing at the time it was enough financed in Italy because I was under the umbrella of the Instituto Nazionale Fisica Nucleare, INFN, and the physics in Italy is well financed. The problem is sometimes different when you go to biology, to other things. But the physics, let's say, high energy physics, especially high energy physics, is well, always well financed. And therefore, I had not so many problems for myself. Therefore, I don't believe that it would be so different as in my career if I would say abroad. So I did not feel that I have changed my career remaining to Italy. And also, after that I turned from, to Italy from Paris, I had uh, two children, and I think that uh, I wanted to grow my children in Italy. That was a personal decision, and also with my wife. So I, I got a few offers from outside in very good place. CERN, for example, in Geneva, some other place in Paris. But at the end, I decided for on the long time I want to stay in Italy, and I had. Uh, many, many collaborations, especially with French people, also American people. 
For a long time, I was only spending one month, uh, at least one month in Paris, uh, where the many collaborations. So I had a very good international connections. There were people from Paris, uh, from Spain, that were coming to Rome, uh, essentially, also from other countries. But the two nations with higher flux were the France and Spain. I stayed here and uh, I don't think that uh, my scientific research has suffered from staying in, in Italy. Let me change direction. Let me ask you about your childhood. You're an enormously curious person and your curiosity is legendary. When did it develop and how did it develop in childhood, do you think? My mother told me that at the age of three years, I was able to read numbers. I was reading the number of the bus when the bus was arriving. I was able to do some kind of game with number and I was certainly able to count some sums quite early. And when I was at elementary school, I started to read the books, popular books of astronomy, lots of popular books of different types. I started to read the science fiction at the age of 10. So I was very curious about all these kind of things. Of course, I was curious also other things. I remember that I read the... <laughs> The history of the Second World War, written by Churchill, which is, I think, 5,000 pages. That's quite a read. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe 4,000, but it's quite an impressive, long uh, document. And uh, it was very interesting to read. I remember that I should be 13 or 14 when uh, I read uh, some book of Dostoevsky, but... uh, Sherlock Holmes, I liked very much Sherlock Holmes, but also in a more advanced mathematics started when I was 13, started to look into the history of mathematics, trying to understand what derivative integral meant and all this kind of stuff. I remember myself being taught calculus without actually really knowing what derivatives and integrals were. (laughs) And I think that's probably a very common story. But how interesting that you were driven to explore it in this way. Do you think that your parents had a role in pushing you towards this or did it just emerge naturally? Well, I think uh, my parents have a certain uh, role. My mother was mainly interested that they have very school marks. (laughs) And uh, clearly, especially when I was uh, young, the books of uh, Astrophysics were bought by my parents and my, my father. So my father was not uh, at all a scientist. He wanted to become an engineer, but he had a technical problem for which uh, at the end he left engineering, but he had a good respect with science. And so it's clear that the old books that I read when I was 13 and so on were books that were by, by my father. We had at home a quite large library, I think, of... Uh, 1,500 books, something like that. Very few of science, many. There was a lot of Pirandello, or, of, uh, for example, of uh, Mum, the English uh, writer. 
Somerset Morn. Yeah. Yes. And for example, I read a lot of these things, but I mean, it was someone that was very curious, very interested to understand things. Also, I do not remember that it was pushing, explicitly me towards science. It was, I think that he was considering that I will do engineering. And therefore, I considered all science, mathematics, and so on, astronomy were some good preparation for doing engineering. And I think that he buy some kind of books also, for example, probably I was interested, I started to ask, but you know, I don't remember too much. When did it occur to you that you would not become a, an engineer or something that was in a way applied, but you would rather become an explorer with your mind and just become a researcher? Just at the moment where I have to decide uh, which course I had to follow at university. That happened at the age of 18, because I finished my school at 18 years. And before I finished high school, I really was not doing any project for the future. I mean, I was not looking to what is why in university, what should I decide and so on. So just at the end, when in the summer time I have to decide where I should go in the fall, I started to look around and I was considering from one side, well, engineering was something that I dismissed because I want to be something more exploring. And uh, biology, I was not particularly interested. I read some books and so on, but for one reason or another, I never considered to do biology, also because I liked very much mathematics, and biology was not uh, at that time any strong amount of mathematics. And therefore, the only thing that remained in discussion was between mathematics and physics. At the end of the day, after looking to mathematics and physics, I decided for physics, but just one month before I have to apply to the university. And I think that I decided for physics and not for mathematics, because in all books that had information of history of mathematics and so on and so on, the history of mathematics were ending at the end of the 19th century. There was uh, not so much of the mathematics of this century. So the reason was quite very clear, because the mathematics of this century is somewhat abstract, and it is not easy to communicate. While the physics of this century was something that was easier to communicate, there were books that were written about the experiments that had been done in CERN, the old books about the Fermi, there was a lot, especially in Italy, we have a very good tradition of physics. The tradition of mathematics is strange, but we had many wonderful mathematicians before the Second World War, but some of them were Jewish, they had some problems on, so mathematics had to start again in Italy after the war, while Edoardo Maldi was very important, was a key figure in Italy in maintaining physics active in Italy. So I had some vague idea of what was the problem of physics, where elementary particles and so on, 
theoretical physics. If you looked on Scientific American, which maybe I was buying at that time and not sure, but you had much more easy to understand what was happening in physics than was happening in mathematics. In the first said physics. In your case, curiosity seems to have been innate. I know you're very interested in how to inspire curiosity in the next generation in children now. Do you think that it is something that can be driven from outside? Well, I think so. I mean, I'm interested in doing, but I'm not actually doing the present moment, but I'm trying to move people for doing. I mean, we had in Italy a very famous educator, Maria Montessori. Maria Montessori is someone that is well known in other countries and also there's lots of schools who use the Montessori method mm. in the United States. And Maria Montessori was saying that the child is naturally scientist. And therefore the idea of Maria Montessori was that the teacher and to prepare some kind of environment where the child can do some kind of experience, but a very simple experience, and to learn things by moving their hands. I mean, if children are not curious, they will not discover they will not be able to walk. I mean, it's clear that there is a very strong innate curiosity in children because otherwise life will not go on. And the idea is that you can try to push this direction in trying to describe some physical law, some simple physical law. And this has been done with, for example, something of this type done in Israel. And now I'm in contact with the president of the Maria Montessori Institute Association in Italy in order to try to do some pilot project here in Rome. But we have to think because apart from my children, my grandchildren, I do not have any particular experience in doing uh, with children. So it's clear that uh, that should be done by people that are professionals in this field. On your personal website, you have stories that you wrote for your children. Yes, uh, they, these were, they were fairy tales. There were three fairy tales that uh, I invented for my children. I had in family the task of reading stories at the night. The children were in bed, and I have two children with 18 months of difference between, of age between themselves, and I could read the stories to them. And, for example, the book that I liked very much was a book of Italo Calvino, fairy, Italian fairy tales, that had the 200 fairy tales, it's wonderful written, and... I also read some uh, some book of uh, the structure of fairy tales. It was, a, I mean, a linguistic. Uh, some somebody studying English wrote a very famous uh, book on the structure of fairy tales, uh, giving the different kind of uh, structures they could have seen, uh, punishment, and so on. Uh, 
But anyhow, I I invented these three tales uh, because I liked to, to invent, but there were only three of them, which also I know I wrote down just not to forget with time. It's <laughs> lovely. I'm sure your children adored it, and it's interesting to think about the connection between telling tales in that sense and the telling of scientific stories, which if you're trying to engage everybody else in your story needs to be done. You need to find a way of getting the ideas across using metaphors or whatever it is. Yes, but uh, I will say that one thing that about uh, fairy tales, I mean, this kind of tales, that they have to somewhat try to communicate values, uh, if you want. It's some way to understand that the virtue gets some kind of recompense, then the vice is punished, that which are the things that you have to do, the fact that you have to risk that amount of you have to risk with your person, that you have to risk your life if you want to reach something. And that all these type of values that uh, have to transmit to the new generations are present in fairy tales. So what I consider fairy tales is important and not so much for scientific task, but in order to have some understanding of, uh, of life. He used the fairy tales to challenge gender stereotypes by making the young girl in one of his stories the saviour of her older brother. Another story focused on the importance of saying please and thank you. And a third tale follows the heroics of a fly to instill love and respect for animals. But he was also adamant about giving his children time to process each story. One rule that I believe I made no exception with my children, that there could be only one fairy tale, not more than one. The idea that I read in some books that children have to think, to elaborate about the message they have received, and if you send together two messages, this will be somewhat confusing, and therefore, once fairy tales, one message, you think before sleeping, and that's all. And another day you get another message, another three days, and so on. Another day. That's a very good message for communication in general, isn't it? A very good fundamental way of approaching it. One message, one idea. Let me finish by asking how you choose a problem. You work on such a variety of things, from the quantum scale to the macro scale, all of them linked, I suppose, by the fact that they're complex uh, systems in which many elements are interacting. But... How do you choose a problem? Well, depends from time to time. Especially at the beginning, I was thinking that the thing that was very important were the toolbox that I had. You study a problem, studying a problem, you construct, you develop a kind of toolbox. And when you have this toolbox, you may try to uh, attack a problem that is very different from the one that you had, uh, that you studied before. And in the 70s were a period that was very interesting because you had a cross-fertilization from people from high energy physics and uh, statistical mechanics. 
So there were a lot of people that were doing high-ended physics that moved to statistical mechanics. For example, Kenneth Wilson, who got the Nobel Prize uh, about 40 years ago. And uh, there are people that from statistical mechanics moved to high-energy physics. And therefore, there was this kind of uh, intersection, cross-fertilization, so the things that happened that you had a toolbox. For example, one of the works that is more or less quoted in the Nobel Prize Motivation, there is not an explicit clear reference, but it's clear that you can read between the lines the work that they've done on stochastic resonance on glaciation. This is one that justifies planetary scale because it was a work that they did to study the type of glaciation. So the things that happened was uh, there was a friend of a friend of mine that was giving a seminar at the Rome University. He said, why you don't come to hear that seminar? I went to that seminar. He was uh, presenting some theory of uh, glaciation that was not... uh, complete, and I got the idea that we could uh, modify the theory, taking care of another component which was not included in the theory, and I remember just after the seminar, I went with him on a tramway to home, and on the tramway we had a lot of discussion about uh, this, after I discussed with other friends in Rome, and uh, most of the work was done by themselves, but, uh, I mean, the, the idea was something occasionally, because if uh, that day I have to go to the dentist, or I had to go, I was not in Rome, or I have other things to do, I would not have to go to that seminar, and, from, and I would have no chance uh, to work with our good friend, uh, this theory of stochastic resonance for glaciation and so on. So sometimes it's just an uh, accident. Or you see that you have a problem that is interesting and you just uh, try to start. The real difficult things is not to start too many things because uh, it's clear that uh, you have, uh, sometimes you have uh, the idea this can be solved and you can try to work on that things, but usually at the beginning everything seems easy. When you want to finish things in a professional way, it gets uh, too long, therefore one must be careful <laughs> not to start too many things. Well, it's obviously been an incredibly successful strategy and it's nice to think about your mix of curiosity and excitement at new problems, but also the self-discipline, not to get too carried away and take on too many things at any one time. It's. I think that in some cases I got to too many things, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's life, isn't it? It's been so lovely speaking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much. It was very interesting. You just heard Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Giorgio Parisi, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. 
The producer for this episode was Karin Svensson. The editorial team also includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, Magnus Yulier, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for more listening, check out our episode with Giorgio Parisi's co-recipient, Klaus Hasselmann, a conversation that was recorded in front of a live audience at the 2021 Nobel Week Dialogue in Gothenburg. You can find previous seasons and conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.